He's in the region of Judea, having ministered thoroughly to the north in Galilee, and now he's making his way to a destiny that he has that's appointed by God the Father in his confrontation of the religious system there that in the establishment of Jerusalem and Judaism. And all along, he is being um, harassed by the Jewish leaders, uh, falsely accused by them, and, and yet Jesus is, is staying the course, if you will. And in the text that we're looking at today in chapter 12 of Luke's gospel, beginning in verse 49, you may recall that, that in the makeup of the crowd, and it was, it was a, a pretty dense multitude that has been following Jesus for some time. Not that they're all followers of Christ. Most of them are curiosity seekers and, and just wanted to see what he's going to do next. And, and some of them are entertained by the confrontation between Christ and the religious leaders. Some of them want to see a miracle. Uh, and, and yet there are, you know, those who believe. First and foremost, the 12 making up his apostles and then an inner circle of believers. And then you got the general crowd. And Jesus is addressing these in, in different areas of the text that we look at today. Uh, in, for instance, verses 49 through uh, 53, Jesus is primarily addressing his disciples. And when we get to verse 54, he will open up uh, the, the, the message that he's speaking, the words that he's speaking to address the multitude. And that helps to just kind of keep that in mind. The first thing that we look at as we begin in chapter 12, verse 49, Jesus reveals harsh realities concerning his mission. There is a certain harshness, even though we think about Jesus ministering tenderly and lovingly and passionately, and he did all along, showing the love of God and, and the comfort of God. Jesus makes it quite clear there are aspects of his mission that are quite harsh. For instance, in verse 49, Jesus says, I came to send fire, fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Those, those words ominous right there. So Jesus is, is warning the people, his disciples primarily. He's saying, listen, you need to know that part of my mission is related to judgment. And, and Judaism of that day was teaching primarily that the coming Messiah would be a man of peace that he would bring peace to Jerusalem. He would bring peace to the Jews, not to the Gentiles, mind you. His mission was a mission of peace. In fact, we, we love to, to go back into the book of Isaiah, and, and there we pick up references to this, this uh, idea of the Messiah being a, a, a Messiah of peace. Here at Christmas, one of the most familiar passages speaking of the, the Messiah, speaking of Christ, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So the Jews had automatically equated that when the Messiah comes, all they're going to be experiencing is this wonderful peace that will prevail all throughout Judaism and all throughout Israel. And, and he would exact his judgment upon the Gentiles. Jesus, in essence, is countering that. Another passage in Isaiah 55 that all alludes to this, this reign of peace by the Messiah. In Isaiah 55, in verse 12, this is Messianic prophecy. He says, For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. 
and the mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. Oh, it sounds so, so glorious and so wonderful and so comforting. And yet Jesus says, as the Messiah, you need to understand that my mission is to send fire upon the earth. Now, the Lord here shatters their false notions about this idea of, of, of peace when he's issuing this sobering announcement that his purpose in coming would ultimately bring fire of judgment, not just on the Gentiles, but also upon Israel, who were rejecting the very Messiah that God was sending. And, and Jesus is giving a warning. He's, he's telling his disciples that one day I am going to bring fire down upon those who reject me, those who are unrepentant. And of course, that was the Jewish leaders and the people of that day in Israel who rejected Christ. You know, John the Baptist picked up on this as he was speaking of the coming Messiah in, in relation to himself. Uh, you may remember John the Baptist, Jesus's cousin, was a forerunner of the Messiah. He came ahead of Christ to proclaim, you know, repent, you know, prepare you the way that, you know, for the Messiah, for the kingdom of God is at hand. But something else that John said reinforces what Jesus is saying right here in, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter three, verse 11. You recall these words that John said, speaking of the, the Messiah. John said in verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He will bring forth the baptism of the Holy Spirit to those who are repentant and believe, and they will be blessed with the presence of the Spirit of God. But then for those who do not believe, understand, John said, he will be bringing a baptism of judgment upon all the unrepentant. And that would include Jews, many of the leaders of that day who were rejecting Christ. But the harshness of the realities concerning his mission didn't just pertain to what he was going to be doing to those who rejected him. But you'll notice that Jesus goes on in verse 50 to make it clear to his disciples. He reveals that he's going to be absorbing a part of the, the harshness of his mission was that he was going to be baptized himself. But his baptism would be a baptism of redemption. He would, he would experience a baptism of, of judgment that would result in redemption of lost mankind. Look at verse 50. Jesus says, but I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Jesus said, not only will I baptize the, the, the unrepentant world with fire, but before that, before that will occur, I myself will be baptized, and it is a baptism of judgment. And he says, this distresses me. Jesus didn't wait till he got to Gethsemane to discover that he was going to have to take upon himself the sins of all the world. He, he didn't wait till he got into the Garden of Gethsemane to all of a sudden be informed that he's going to have to die on the cross and pay for the price of the sins of those who would believe. Oh, no. Jesus knew before the dawn of time, when the, the, the blessed Holy Trinity devised the plan of God's redemption, he knew then that he would suffer 
for the sins of many. And so Jesus is saying here that he is going to, as the Messiah, in manifesting God's love and God's grace to all those who believe, he would have to endure an agonizing baptism of judgment, uh, taking your sins and the penalty of your sins and my sins upon himself. Oh, we know how he agonized. But Jesus agonized in anticipation all through his earthly ministry, not just that night before the cross in Gethsemane. He knew this, knew it was a reality. He knew that Paul would later say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he, God, made him Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And folks, let me tell you something. In that one exchange, Jesus Christ suffered like no being ever had suffered and ever would suffer because he alone could do what he did on Calvary. So Jesus announces the harsh realities that are coming with his mission in addition to the wonderful realities that included the, the salvation of mankind, those who would believe. Jesus reveals not only the harsh realities of his, his coming mission, but he also reveals the divisive nature of his mission. And I acknowledge, and the scripture teaches, that, that Christ coming into the world, his, his, his redemptive mission would do that which was unthinkable to humankind, and that is Christ would begin to unite all the different ethnic groups, all the different language groups, all the nationalities would be bonded together and unified in one. And we know that. And we see that in the visions of the revelation that we've seen of the people gathered around the throne of God. But, but in his mission, the nature of his mission, the nature of the gospel, the nature of who Christ was would drive a wedge of division based on the reality that sin separates sinful man from holy God. We know that, that, the mission of Christ would divide sinful people from holy God. We saw in chapter 12, verses 45 and, and on, we saw in, uh, through 48 that Jesus was teaching about what would happen to those, those servants who would, who would uh, not, not be watching for the master, who wouldn't believe in the master. They wouldn't prepare for the master's return from the wedding. And, and as a result of their unbelief, as a result of their lack of faith, they would suffer. And we saw that. We saw the different degrees of punishment for those who would not place their faith in the Lord. And Jesus taught that in that, in that parable. So we saw a glimpse of the, of the awful wrath and wrathful judgment of God vented towards disobedient, unbelieving servants who were separated from the good master and sentenced into eternal punishment in hell. And that's the consequence of every unbelieving sinner today. We know that the scripture clearly teaches in Romans 6, 23, the penalty of sin is eternal death, eternal separation from God forever. But thank the Lord, Paul goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Jesus taught in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone, he says, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of God. No, he said, but those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
And in Matthew chapter 25, verse 30, Jesus spoke about that place. For those who would be divided away from, the, the, from, from God, those who would be separated from God, Jesus said they will go out into that outer darkness, a place in Matthew chapter 25, verse 30, that Jesus says in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is a real place. Eternal damnation is a reality. It awaits those who choose to refuse to accept Jesus Christ and stubbornly rebel against God and live in unrepentant sin. And Jesus says, a part of my mission will be to divide. And we know in some of the parables, like the parable of the sower, Jesus talked about there will come a time when the angels of God will go throughout the world and gather up those like tares in the midst of wheat. And that, that, that choose not to believe in God and, and reject God's glorious offer of salvation through Jesus. And he says, and, and those angels will, will collect all the unbelievers, all the unrepentant, all the rebellious. And they will be cast into the fire like you would cast chaff or weeds into a burning fire. And as Christians, we need to, you know, of course, accept that reality. But we need not fear that separation from God because we've been gloriously, I emphasize gloriously, reconciled to God. That was a part of Jesus. That's the redemptive part of Jesus's mission. Just as he had a judgmental part of his, his mission, Jesus, part of Jesus's mission was to reconcile, reconcile lost sinners to God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Paul said in, in Romans chapter five, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, that's the hope of the gospel. That's the message. But for those who choose to refuse Christ, there will be division. But not only will there be that division from holy God, separating sinners from holy God, there will be division even among human relationships, the Lord says. And, and there will be divisiveness as a result of the message of the gospel, as a result of the ministry of Jesus Christ. It was happening even at that time. Look with me in verse 52. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother and daughter-in-law against uh uh, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. So you see, this Jesus has said, be warned that my coming upon the scene, my coming into to, upon the earth, my coming and preaching this wonderful message of the gospel is not going to be wonderfully, warmly received by everybody and everybody's going to welcome what Jesus is teaching and living and professing before the people and calling people too. He says, there will be division and it will happen in the households. This is actually a fulfillment of the prophecy given in Micah, the minor prophet Micah in chapter seven, verse six. Listen to the similarity in what Micah prophesied and what Jesus said would actually take place. Micah said in, in chapter seven, verse six, for son dishonors father, daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are in his own house. And ladies and gentlemen, that's even occurring now. You know it and I know it. Beginning in our family, especially our closest relationships, families are being divided because some choose to follow Christ, some choose to live for Christ, and some reject him. 
and it drives divisions between family members. It drives divisions between friendships. It, it drives divisions in work scenes. It drives division in school scenes. Wherever people are engaged in relationships and becomes known that somebody is a dedicated follower of Jesus Christ, you can just about guarantee it's going to create tension, if not actual division. And that's what Jesus said. You know, recently we prayed for Christians in Baran. And, you know, and we were praying for the, the ones who were martyred. And I was, I was reading in the voice of the martyrs, prayer God. They say Christian converts from Islam often lose their jobs and social status. And many are rejected by their families. And some of these radical Muslim countries, not only are they rejected by their families, sometimes they're treated as if they're not even alive, as if they have actually died. And in some cases, even people are, Christians are murdered by their families. Their families would rather have them physically dead than rather suffer the shame and embarrassment, humiliation of thinking that they turned their back on Islam and Allah. Christian converts from Islam suffer in homes, in jobs, that's going on out there. It's not just with Islam, folks. Christians who choose to convert from, from Hinduism or, or Buddhism or those who turn their backs against the communist regime that maybe is control of their country, they suffer also. There's great division in those situations too. And that's what the Lord is saying. There will be division. And I think about Christians today. And I'm talking about authentic, Bible-believing Christians who genuinely, authentically choose to follow Christ and to imitate him and to practice the principles of his word daily. I think about how increasingly in our society that is increasingly secularistic and humanistic, how a genuine Christian simply seeking to live an openly obedient Christian life may experience suspicion, may experience avoidance, they may experience resistance, and sometimes even antagonism. Christian young people suffering antagonism by their parents or parents from their children or, or other siblings or family members. It doesn't stop there. The division doesn't stop there. Because for an authentically dedicated Christian who chooses to live and stand on the Christian doctrine and the biblical principles, especially when it comes to the popular and politically energized subjects such as abortion, and the LBGTQ plus agenda and the whole sexual re revolution agenda that is gripping not only our nation, but nations all across the Western Hemisphere. And how, how Christians who dare to stand against these, these very popular political subjects like that, if you don't get on board with what is considered to be politically correct, then you will be divided. You will be separated out. And it's occurring. And I say, folks, listen, Jesus warned us 2,000 years ago. Don't think that you're going to be with the in crowd when you choose to dedicate your life to follow after the Son of God and stand for godliness and holiness and righteousness. The gospel divides Christians from the world's crowd. And I tell young Christians, get used to it. You will find yourself 
in the minority in a hurry. You won't have the support of the popular media or the culture or the government because Christ warned us that what he comes to pro pro proclaim and to offer to humanity, many will reject. I ask you this morning, are you ready to stand solidly on your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and the teachings of God's word is absolutely infallible and inerrant? Are you willing to stand on that with your life and with your reputation and with your occupation? Are you, are you willing to stand? Are you willing to stand alone? What if it's only a handful of you? What if you're the only one? And everybody else is separated apart from you. Just because you choose to, to put your faith and convictions in your relationship with Jesus Christ, you'll find yourself going against the sinful tide of our modern day culture. And it's becoming harder and harder, folks. I say this to those who are fence, fence sitters. It's becoming a whole lot harder to straddle the fence nowadays. It's becoming a whole lot harder to try to, to, to straddle that moral debate as if you don't take either side. Listen, it's not going to be a middle ground long because Christ said he's divided the word of God. And Brother Mark made reference to this. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is, is like a, a knife, a two-edged sword that cuts and divides and separates. And that's what we'll find. And that's what Jesus is warning there. The message of the Christian gospel has been dividing people since the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. Think about it. From the day Christ came on the scene and began to proclaim the truth of the gospel and the will of God, there's like a, divide, a division. You could see those who are with him, those who are against him. And, 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 and that was going on and it's still happening today. The gospel and biblical Christianity will divide the false, superficial, and supposed Christians from the authentic, faithful followers of Christ. We're seeing that happen even today. When you, as a, as a true Bible-believing, Christ-committed Christian, come into the presence of those who are just kind of going along for the ride, and they believe in some of the Bible, but not all of the Bible, you know, and, and they don't want to get, you know, too dogmatic because it might cause them to lose some of their popularity and lose some of their friendships or their social status. You'll find that, that the gospel is beginning to separate even those two elements of Christianity. Finally, Christ criticizes their lack of spiritual discernment. After warning them about the oncoming judgment, after warning them about the division that the gospel and the ministry of Christ would, would cause, in verse 57, Jesus issues yet another warning. And that was a, a warning that they needed to be more spiritually discerning. How spiritually discerning are you? Are you able to take the teachings of the word of God and from your heart and from the, the word of God and the spirit of God guiding you, are you able to exercise discernment to determine what is right in God's eyes, what is not right in God's eyes? 
and how to live. The vast majority of the nation of Israel, including their religious leaders, would miss out on salvation. They'd miss out on the greatest gift that God would offer to all of humanity and all the world because they failed to properly discern what Jehovah God was doing right in their midst, right before their eyes. Because they were not spiritually prepared to greet and welcome, place their faith and trust in the Messiah because they didn't recognize him. How sad. They didn't even recognize him. They lacked the spiritual discernment. And that's what Jesus is talking about. It's no less tragic today, folks. With the way that the gospel is spread across the world today and missionaries continue to carry. You know, when, when Tim gives us our, our unreached people groups of the, of, the, uh, of the week and we pray for them, and he's, he's consistently told us how many are vastly lost, unreached, never have heard, chances are never will hear of the gospel. One of our international mission board reports estimates this, this staggering claim. They estimate that some 230,000 people just in the region of South Asia, some 237,000 people in South Asia will die without Christ every week. That's like saying the population of the city of Winston-Salem will slide into the fiery pits of hell never to be redeemed every week. And yet the gospel is right here. What a shame. Well, when it comes to the Jewish leaders and the people of, of, of Israel, Jesus sarcastically pointed out that they were a little bit better at discerning the weather than they were the times. In verse 54, he says, then he said to the multitudes, he's, he's talking to the whole crowd. He says, when you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say a shower is coming. And so it is. Nowadays, we have Van Denton on Channel 8. But anyway. And when you see the south wind blow, you say there will be uh, this, there will be hot weather. And there it is. There's nothing incredibly intelligent about that. The, the, the moisture laden Mediterranean Sea was to the west of them. And if the, if the front was blowing over the, the western uh, of the Mediterranean, it would pick up moisture and bring it in. That was just a logical thing. I wasn't a phenomenal thing to surmise that if the wind was blowing from the south and coming up across Israel, oh, it's going to be dry now. Because if you travel south of Israel, you run into the desert. It brings up dry air. Oh, we have a little saying, I think you all know about it, you know, red sky morn, you know, morning. You know, I, I say farmers take morning. But Jan, her dad was in the Navy, and she declares it's sailors take morning. We haven't resolved that yet, but the fact is that the sky is red in the morning. Be ready for some moisture, you know. But Jesus is basically picking up on that. 
he, he says, when you see that cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say a shower is coming. So it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say there will be hot, hot weather. There it is. Then look what he follows it with. Oh, you intelligent meteorologist. No. Verse 56, he said, you hypocrites. And he's talking to the religious leaders as well as the people. You hypocrites. You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth. But how is it that you do not discern this time? Not just time in general. How is it that you can look at the sky and tell what the weather's going to be, and yet God has put His only Son, the Messiah of the world, right in front of your faces, and you somehow you can't discern? You have watched Him perform miracles like nobody has ever performed. You've watched him cure leprosy. You've watched him give sight to the blind. You've watched him make the lame to walk. You've watched him take a, a, a meager boy's lunch and feed thousands of people. You've watched him raise the dead. You've heard him preach with authority the word of God about the kingdom of God like no man has ever preached before. How is it that all of this could be happening and you're still so blind? Jesus didn't extend any more mercy to the Jews at that time. I'd say pity on the soul who lives in 21st century America and has seen and heard and has access to the complete word of God and heard preaching and everything and teachings and yet they still are spiritually blind. Using Beginning in verse 57, and we'll be closing in verse 57, Jesus also condemns them for their failure to discern not only the, the, the times, but he, he condemns them for failing to discern God's impending judgment. Yeah, it breaks my heart when I find out how many preachers are, are kind of squeamish about preaching on hell. And preaching on judgment. Folks, it's all throughout the word of God. There's no denying that there is coming a day of judgment upon those who reject the Son of God. So just keep that in the back of your minds because Jesus is using a familiar judicial scenario and challenging the people to examine their own lives spiritually in relation to the coming judgment. He says in verse 57, yes, and why even of yourselves do you not judge what is right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, the magistrate was usually the one that did the preliminary hearing between two people to determine if this was a case that needed the attention of the judge. He says, when you go to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him. Lest he drag you to the judge. And it could be somebody as ruthless as Judge Judy. Bring you to the judge and the judge himself will deliver you to the officer. This is the, this is the executioner. If the judge says you're guilty and the executioner gets on to you, it's not a pretty picture. Because you're going to be thrown into the prison house and you're going to be, it's a work camp and you're going to be made to do hard, hard labor and you will work day and night where until your fingers are almost ground to the bone and you don't get a parole. You don't get an early exit. You work until you have paid your debt 
in full. There is no mercy in this system. A wise person, a discerning person who knows that they're guilty and they owe a debt. Jesus said, you're going to make every effort to pay that debt even before you get to the magistrate. Settle it with your adversary. Don't take the chance of facing the judgment that awaits. Now, do you see what he's saying? Every human being born on the face of the earth is born in spiritual indebtedness. We and every other person were hopelessly indebted to God because of our sins. And guess what? Just punishment would result in our souls being cast into the fiery pit of hell for eternity. You don't go to hell having been judged by the righteous judge. You don't go to hell and stay there for 20,000 years and pay off your debt and then finally get to heaven. There is no purgatory. Don't wait to the day you stand before the judge. Settle your debts now. And that's what Jesus is saying. Don't be so blind. Let the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, open your eyes to see that you owe God a great spiritual debt that if you end up going to hell, you'll spend eternity there with no mercy and no hope. Pay the debt. You said, but we can't. And you're right. We can't. We can't pay the price for the redemption of our souls. And then enters God's amazing offer of grace. That's why we call it amazing grace. It's because the righteous and holy God is a merciful God. And he knows that we can't pay off our sin debt. He knew that from the beginning. And he made arrangements for his own son to do that which we could never do for ourselves. And by his shed blood on a rugged cross, as a precious lamb of God, Jesus, when he said, it is finished. Translated says, Charlie Martin's sin debt is paid in full. He won't have to stand before the executioner. He won't have to stand before the righteous judge at the end of time at the great white throne of judgment because his sin debt is paid in full. And yet, one after another after another by the dozens, by the hundreds, by the thousands will continue to walk in spiritual blindness when God is shouting his grace to them through the gospel and they'll walk right out of this life into eternity and stand before that great majestic perfect throne of justice and hear Jesus Christ the son of God as the judge of all humanity say to them depart from me I never knew you Jesus is warning the people that his mission is not just about love and, and forgiveness. And, and oh, no, no. There's an element of his mercy that is extremely harsh, especially to those who choose to continue to reject him and to rebel against his will. Where do you stand? 
As a Christian, are you living your life with the confidence of knowing that you are rightly related with the holy and the just God of the universe? Have you fully, truly, actually received his glorious gift of forgiveness, salvation, eternal life, adoption into his family, and to live with the confidence that Paul lived with when he says, for me to live as Christ, to tie his game, I'm in a win-win situation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is absolutely true. We thank you that you love us so much that you gave us your word. And through your word, you have revealed, Lord, your mission, your purpose, your plan, and where we fit in. Lord, I pray for anyone here today that have been putting off the decision to place their full faith and trust in you and to receive the glorious gift of salvation and eternal life. Lord, I pray that you will open their spiritual eyes to see the truth, shine the light of the gospel into their hearts. Oh God, I pray that for our family members. I pray that for our neighbors. I pray that for our co-workers. Those that we know right now, Lord, are walking in spiritual blindness. Oh God, would you open their eyes? Would you give us a boldness and a compassion to share the truth of the gospel with them before it's too late? We thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you that as we prepare to move through Advent, one, one day, should you, not, should you tarry and you're coming one day, Lord, here soon, we will be singing and celebrating the fact that you came into this world to carry out this bold and great and glorious mission that will result in our salvation. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Brother Mark, if I could get you to please come and close our service as you see fit. Thank you.